Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5? We are studying uh, the book of Matthew on Sunday morning at Calvary, and we are in a section, as we have mentioned many times, that runs from chapter 5 through chapter 7. This section is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount has been called by many the great manifesto of the kingdom. You see, Jesus came to present the kingdom to Israel. But when the nation rejected her king, she also rejected his kingdom. But that didn't stop the kingdom from coming. Yes, of course, the visible political kingdom offer was withdrawn from Israel at that time. But that didn't stop the kingdom from coming. Because Jesus then turned from the nation to individuals, both Jews and Gentiles, with his offer. You see, anybody who receives the king into their heart, the kingdom comes within them, spiritually and invisibly into their hearts. That's what the Bible calls the mystery form of the kingdom. Now, we'll study that more when we get to chapter 13. But the mystery form of the kingdom is where, when you receive the king into your heart to reign over your life, the kingdom of God comes within you. What does that mean? Well, is the kingdom is going to come visibly someday to the whole earth. When Jesus returns to establish that kingdom at his second coming, the world is going to be full of his peace, his love, his joy, his truth. Well, as Christians, we have a little preview of that right now inside of us. The Holy Spirit has moved in and has given us peace and joy and love and truth and all the attributes are going to be worldwide, openly, visibly when the King comes at that time, right now, we are enjoying inwardly. Because anywhere the king reigns, the kingdom has come. And as citizens of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount becomes the manifesto. It becomes the principles by which we live our lives by, because that's the way we bring honor and glory to our king. Now, let's not forget the context here. Jesus is laying out the character and conduct of those who are members of the kingdom of God. But in so doing... He is correcting also the misconceptions that the disciples had gotten from the scribes and Pharisees concerning the law of God. Now, we've talked about the law many times. I'm going to make it real easy. Every time I say law, the law of God, just think of the Ten Commandments. It's bigger than that, but that's, for our reference, good enough. The scribes and Pharisees had misinterpreted the law of God. They took an internal law and made it a purely external thing. This is... This is quite common for religious unbelievers. It's kind of a strange term, right? Religious unbelievers. But I'll tell you what, it's very true. There are churches populated across this nation with religious unbelievers. People that have religion but do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity, as you well know, is not a religion. It's a relationship. I had religion for many years when I was a Roman Catholic, raised in the Catholic Church, went to Catholic school, was married in the Catholic Church. I had religion for all those years. I did not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ until I, at one point, got on my knees and received him as my Lord and Savior. When that happened, something miraculous took place. I mean, he came inside of me. How did I know that? My attitudes began to change almost immediately. I mean, all of a sudden, things that I never wanted to do before, go to church, read the Bible, prayer meeting, you kidding me? All of a sudden, these were things I was hungry for. I wanted to live for God. I wanted others to know God. This was brand new for me. And, of course, for you too when you receive Jesus in your heart. Religious unbelievers don't have that. And because people are unbelievers who go to church, they always tend to focus on outward things. 
There's nothing inward. Jesus doesn't reign in their hearts. So they have to focus on outward trappings of religion, the rules, the rituals, the ceremonies, etc. This is what religious people do. And by doing these things and going to church and lighting candles and, and keeping ceremonies and so on, they think that they are righteous before God. And this really described the scribes and Pharisees to a T. They had turned the internal law of God into an external set of rules and rituals which they believed they were keeping. And because they believed they were keeping those things, that made them righteous in God's eyes. Well, Jesus said no. They were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they looked pure and holy inside, though. They were full of defilement and uncleanness, etc. Religion can only surface cleanse a person's life, make them look holy and righteous. It can't touch the heart, which is what God looks at. And that's why Jesus dropped this bombshell in verse 20, which becomes the key verse for the entire sermon. He said, For I tell you, speaking to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is basically saying here is the righteousness that is required to get into heaven is a righteousness that goes beyond our abilities to produce. It has to come from God. So keep that in mind. And so starting in verse 21 and running through verse 48 of chapter 5, Jesus is going to give God's original intent for the law. The proper interpretation of the law as God originally intended it. Now, he does so by touching on six different aspects of the law. And you know in your heart of hearts we'll never get through all these today, all right? But here they are. He touches on six different aspects of the law. Murder, adultery, divorce, honesty, demonstrating mercy instead of demanding justice, and loving our enemies. Six times he quotes from the rabbinic tradition of the scribes and Pharisees by saying, you have heard that it was said by those of old. And then after each time, he gives God's true interpretation by saying, but I say to you, as he corrects these misconceptions. Now, understand once again, as we've already made mention, but we have to get this in our, our minds, all right? The Ten Commandments were not given by God to make us righteous, but to show us our guilt before a holy God. See, there's a lot of folks that believe that if they're just good people, and how do they define that? Well, they try to do what's right, and which means I try to obey God. There's a lot of people who think that by just trying really hard to live good lives, that's going to get them into heaven. And yet when you ask them, well, have you ever lied? Well, sure. Have you ever stolen anything? Yeah. Have you ever lusted after somebody? Well, yeah, who hasn't? Well, these are all things that God said in his law that we were commanded not to do. So every time we violate one of those laws, and we all violate them every day, right? Every time we violate one of those laws, it proves that we're not righteous and that we could never be righteous enough to get into heaven because we can't keep God's perfect standard. We are fallen sinners. How can fallen imperfect sinners ever rise to the level of perfection? It can't be. And so the law was not given to make us righteous, to get us into heaven. It was made to show us our sin. The law was intended by God to frustrate us from our own self-effort and self-works to drive us to our knees, to cry out to him, God, I can't keep this way. Is there another way by which I can get to heaven? And of course, Jesus came and said, I am that way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. 
But this idea that the law was not given to make us righteous but to condemn us is written all throughout the pages of the New Testament. I'll give you one passage. I'll read it to you out of the New Living Translation, all right? This is, this is one of dozens, but Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. Listen to what Paul said. He said, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Now keep that in mind as we go through these verses. Not just today, but through verse 48 in the weeks to come. Jesus is not teaching us how to keep the law for righteousness. He is raising the bar so high that we all feel condemned. Is that good? It is good if it drives you to Christ for salvation. See, the scribes and the Pharisees had dragged God's standards so low that they felt they were keeping it. And Jesus needs to drive it up again to a place where it was unattainable by fallen sinners to ever live that way. And the purpose is to make us feel condemned. The law condemns. But that's good if it drives you then to Christ for salvation. When I used to read this section, guys, as a new Christian, I was terrified. Literally terrified. As I saw what Jesus was saying here, I thought, how can I even be saved? I mean, I, I violate this stuff all the time. Well, as we go through this, we're going to show you what Jesus is really doing. All right? And so the scribes and the Pharisees had misinterpreted the law to the point that they felt they were keeping it. And therefore, instead of feeling guilty before God and coming to his Messiah for salvation, they felt very righteous. But in fact, they were missing the whole point. You see, folks, the law wasn't just external. It was also internal. In other words, it was not only given by God to govern the outward actions of our lives, listen, but also the inward attitudes of our hearts. And this is where they had completely missed it. They had taken an internal law and had driven it outward. And as long as they were outwardly keeping these commandments, they felt justified. Jesus said, you're overlooking the intent of the law. God looks upon the heart. So understand what Jesus is doing through this sermon. He's elevating the law back to the level God originally intended for it. Not just outward, but in fact inward. And I can make a case very easily that what Jesus is saying through this sermon is, God is actually more concerned about the inward attitudes than even the outward actions. He's more concerned about the spirit of the law than he is about the letter of the law. It's very possible, in fact, it happens all the time, where we can violate the spirit of the law while we are keeping the letter of the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, look, the law says you shall not lie, right? I mean, you don't have to verbally lie to mislead somebody, do you? You can give a half-truth. But if it leads somebody to a false conclusion, you've basically misled them. You've lied to them. In fact, you don't even have to say a word, and you can lie. You say, well, how is that possible? Somebody comes up to you at work and praises you for the wonderful job you did with this project. Now, you know you didn't do much on that project at all. It was really some other person. But you just stay there quiet, stand there quietly smiling as they dump all this praise on you. You're giving them the impression that you were the one that worked on that. You were the one that did most of the work. You haven't said a word, but you've lied. You've misled somebody. The law says you shall not steal. You don't have to physically steal something with your hands. You could be in the checkout line at the grocery store, and as the bagger's putting in the groceries, talking to somebody as he's doing it, or she's doing it, he might grab somebody else's grocery and stick it in your bag. You saw what was done there. 
You saw, you know, it was the person that was behind you, and the kind of, you know, how that kind of the grocery sometimes kind of get on your side there. And, and, and so Bagger takes it, puts it in your bag. You saw, but you don't say a word. I didn't steal it. Well, by not bringing it to their attention, yes, you have. Or if the checkout person gives you too much change, I know this never happened to anybody here, but, you know, gives you too much change. You know they've given you too much change. You don't say a word, though. And the justification is, well, I didn't steal it. They gave it to me. Well, you know what happened, see? You don't have to physically do the act and still be guilty of violating the spirit of the law. And Jesus is going to drive that point home uh, in this section and in the next section when he talks about murder and adultery. You don't have to physically commit murder or adultery to be guilty of breaking the spirit of the law in those areas, which we'll study in a moment. You see, it's the attitude of our heart which matters most to God, not the outward actions of our lives, although that's important too. It's just that the outward actions of our lives don't always indicate what really is going on in our hearts. They're not the truest indicator of how upright we really are. That's why the Bible says all over the place, Old and New Testament, that God is looking always at the heart. I'll give you two passages. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The psalmist said in Psalm 7, verse 9, For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. God judges everything we do by what motivated us to do those things. He always looks at the motives and attitudes of our hearts. Now, with that in mind, Jesus begins this section. A section that we're going to cover this morning from verses 21 to 26, which we're entitling, Who is a murderer? Who is a murderer? I'm sure the scribes and Pharisees would have said, Not us. We've never killed anybody. Well, let's see what Jesus said about this. Verse 21. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And just stop there. You shall not murder. Well, that was the sixth commandment of the Decalogue, which is recorded in Exodus 20, verse 13. The rabbinic tradition of the scribes and Pharisees rightly said, that it carried with it a death penalty for those who violated it. That was true. Now, the King James Version wrongly translates Exodus 20.13 by saying, Thou shalt not kill, which has caused many to condemn all killing on biblical grounds, even when it comes to capital punishment or when it comes to taking life in times of war. They say the Bible says, Thou shalt not kill, period. However, capital punishment was instituted by God himself in Genesis 9, verse 6. And all you got to do is read the Old Testament just superficially to see how God led his people into many wars against his enemies, resulting in many deaths. So God is obviously not a pacifist. So how do we reconcile those things with Exodus 20, verse 13? Very simply, in Exodus 20, 13, the Hebrew is correctly translated You shall not murder. You shall not murder. This is a command that prohibits us from taking human life out of anger or selfishness or even out of a sense of righteous justice, as when somebody murders, we'll say, an abortion doctor. That is not for us to do. See, the Ten Commandments are what's called the moral law. We've talked about this. The law was divided into three categories, the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. You can't mix them together. They're separate. The moral law was directed at our personal conduct. 
it's not a civil law. Because civil law does not prohibit governments from the right of capital punishment or from the authority to take life in times of war. That's something that God has given to civil governments. He has not given it to individuals. It is not our right to exact vengeance on enemies. We don't have the right to kill people in the name of some misguided sense of justice. When Jesus quoted the scribes and Pharisees' teaching in verse 21, when he said, You have heard it said, To those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. The word judgment there is a word in this context that means capital punishment. Capital punishment. See, Jesus was saying that not only did the scribes and Pharisees reduce the law to merely externals, external actions or outward actions, but they had actually reduced the consequences so that they only affected the temporal and not the eternal. So they lessened the impact of the law. They, they lessened the consequences of the law. In fact, their whole focus was wrong. I mean, Jesus said they were going around teaching, don't murder anybody because you're going to get yourself in trouble with the law. What's the focus there? It's me, right? It's consequences. I mean, forget about don't murder anybody because it's wrong to kill innocent people. I mean, people made in the image of God is wrong to, the, to just take life. No, it's all up in the Pharisees and scribes' mind. It was all about the negative consequences you would bring into your own life if you did this kind of thing. They had turned a righteous law into a self-centered kind of a thing. Forget about how it affects other people. It's only me. See, this is the problem with religion. It tends to become very man-centered. Christianity is all about the cross. But religion, well, that puts man at the center. And everything becomes man-centered. How is God going to bless me? How is God going to enrich my life? How is God going to do this or that for me? But in reality, it's all about getting our eyes off of ourselves and getting our eyes onto others. That's what the Christian message is all about. And so Jesus corrects their misguided teachings by saying in verse, well, verse 21 again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. I mean, here Jesus goes back to the attitude that leads to the action of murder. Which again reminds us that God is much more concerned about the spirit of the law than he is even the letter of the law. It's what's inside a person's heart that matters most to God. Because sin, folks, all sin originates in the heart. And God looks at the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 19, For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, etc. And so even if you never actually carry out the act of murder, people think, well, I've never murdered anybody. I guess I'm righteous then with regard to the Sixth Commandment. Um, how many people, I wonder, if they had the opportunity, would take someone's life that they really hated? How many people don't take life because they fear the consequences, not because they're righteous in their heart? See, Jesus is saying, you know, you guys, you scribes and Pharisees, you hate everybody. And they did. They hated everybody but their, their group. And just because you've never actually carried out the act of murder doesn't mean in the eyes of God in your hearts you have not murdered many people through the hatred that you harbor in the eyes of God. Verse 22, once again, Jesus said, But I say to you, 
that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment or capital punishment. Notice what Jesus says here. He said that uh, whoever is angry with his brother, what? Without a cause. Without a cause. You know, folks, not all anger is sinful. Not all anger is sinful. There is such a thing as righteous anger. What is that? It's never, listen to me, it's never anger because of what somebody else has done to you. Righteous anger only manifests itself when God's holy name is being defiled or dragged through the mud or somebody who is weaker and helpless is being taken advantage of and is, is being treated unjustly. Then we can have righteous anger. Jesus demonstrated righteous anger when he cleansed the temple of those who had defiled it. He said, my father's house shall be called the house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. That was righteous anger. He took a cat of nine tails and he drove out the money changers, turned over the tables. People say, oh, he's having a little temper tantrum. No, not at all. That's God's righteous anger being manifested. You know, Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians 4 verse 26, it's okay to have righteous anger as long as you don't allow it to cause you to sin by imposing vigilante justice on somebody. Again, when you drive by an abortion clinic and you know that there are doctors in there who are murdering innocent children in their mother's womb, it's okay to get angry. It's okay to burn with righteous anger. It's not okay to take a gun, go in there, and kill that abortion doctor. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy hungers, what do you do? Give him something to eat. If he thirsts, give him something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. That's our responsibility as members of the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom. And someday when the Lord establishes the great white throne, believe me, all accounts are going to be settled and all judgment will be just. It's not up to us to settle the score down. We give it to God. In the meantime, we love our enemies and pray for them and so on. But the word anger here in verse 22, or angry, Whoever is angry with his brother is a word that means a self-centered anger, a vengeful, vindictive anger. One author defined it this way. He said, and I quote, This kind of anger has to do with brooding, simmering anger that is nurtured and not allowed to die. It is seen in the holding of a grudge, in the smoldering bitterness that refuses to forgive. It is the anger that cherishes resentment and does not want reconciliation, end quote. And Jesus said, if you harbor that kind of anger in your heart towards another, it is deserving of the physical penalty for murder. Pretty heavy stuff. He continues, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, or in other words, shall be in danger of being dragged into court. Raka is an Aramaic word, and we really don't have an English equivalent for that word. We know it was used back then as a term of contempt, some believe it meant brainless idiot or empty-headed fellow. I mean, we read that, we kind of chuckle almost, don't we? I mean, I've heard worse than that from parents on the sidelines yelling at the ump at their kids' Little League games. It just goes to show you how jaded our culture has become with regard to sin. How that we've so accepted sin that only the worst forms of sin we think are really bad. In fact, most of the little stuff we call white lies or little things like that, we don't even take them seriously. When you read a passage like this, where Jesus said in the eyes of God, even these seemingly minor infractions, even these seemingly minor put-downs, which to us are no big deal, in the eyes of God, they are worthy of capital punishment, what does that do to you? 
it should take every one of us back. Because here we are confronted with something we don't take seriously that much anymore today, which is the holiness of God. I mean, we live with so much sin around us all the time, we kind of think maybe God doesn't care about most of this stuff. He does care. A lot of people are going to be in for a horrible surprise someday when they stand before a holy God on the day of judgment. People who thought, well, I'm not a bad person. I think I'll get in. And find out that the smallest little so-called white lie, quote-unquote, was put against their ledger because a holy God cannot overlook any sin. When you hear these words, it should bring terror into our hearts. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ especially, because how many people, when they hear these words by Jesus, say to themselves, wow, uh, how guilty am I in the eyes of God? I mean, if calling somebody Raka, an empty-headed idiot, is worthy of capital punishment on earth, I mean, I call people a lot worse than that on my way to work every day, driving the expressway. I mean, what is my standing before God? Good question. Good question. See, now you're getting the point, though. The law was not intended to make you feel good about yourself. It was intended to condemn you and me for our sins. But wait a minute, it gets worse. Jesus said in verse 22, But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. The word in the Greek for fool is a word we get our English word moron from. Now, just because you call someone a fool doesn't necessarily mean you've sinned. It all depends on the attitude of your heart when you said it. For example, Jesus called the Pharisees fools. The psalmist called the unbeliever a fool. But in those cases, it was true, right? I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ and the psalmist weren't using that term as a term of contempt spoken in a fit of rage. But Jesus said when it is directed at somebody out of that kind of heart, a heart of rage and anger, where the term is used as a term of contempt, well, not only are they worthy of physical punishment, physical death, but also eternal punishment in hell. I mean, think about that for a second. If people in our country, just our country, ever knew that to call somebody a moron out of a heart of anger and contempt was worthy of hell? Do you think that people would start to maybe become a little more sober-minded how they live their lives? If that was something that was worthy of hellfire? See, people don't know how holy God... They have dragged God's standards so low that in their minds they're keeping God's word when in reality they are not. And so in verse 23, Jesus starts out with the word, Therefore. Therefore, which basically ties what he has just gotten done saying to the application he's about to make. And let me just paraphrase, there's a lot we could paraphrase that one word. Let me just put it this way. Jesus is saying, look, now that you know that God is very much concerned about how you think about people in your heart, and even what you say to them with your mouth, listen up to what I have to say in the light of this. Therefore, he said, if you bring your gift to the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, did you catch this? Notice, Jesus isn't even talking about the feelings of anger and resentment that we might be harboring towards someone else. He's talking about us taking the initiative to alleviate those feelings that someone else is harboring against us. Now, of course, we need to deal with those feelings in our hearts. Of course, that goes without saying. 
mean, those feelings that we have towards another of anger and bitterness and resentment, contempt, outright anger, I mean, they're going to stand in the way of our relationship with God and hinder our ability to worship God. Yes, that's implied. It's just that Jesus took it to a whole new level. When he said, look, it's not enough simply to deal with those negative feelings in your own heart towards another and be done with it. While the other person we got into it with is still simmering with anger and resentment in their heart, it's up to us, it's our responsibility, Jesus said, to help them to forgive us also. How? By doing whatever we can. But to humble ourselves, do whatever we can to go to them and to try to make things right. Now, I know that some people will say, wait a minute, this person hates me and I never did anything wrong to them. Well, that might be true. I mean, people hated Jesus and he never did anything wrong to them. Sometimes people will hate you without a cause. Jesus even warned us about this. He said, look, just as they've hated me without a cause, they're going to hate you the same way. So there are times, because just because you're a Christian, people are going to hate you, all right? So what do you do? I mean, you know, I mean, how do you make amends with people that hate you? And well, as Paul said, you go and you do whatever you can. He said in Romans 12, verse 18, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So if you got into it with somebody and you've worked it out between you and God, but you know what, they're still having a hard time with the whole deal, humble yourself, go to them, and confess your sin to them. Ask for forgiveness. Try to work it out where their hearts are not filled with all this anger and bitterness as well. If they refuse to make up with you, then that's between them and God now. It's all you can do. All you can do is humble yourself, ask for forgiveness, try to work it through. If they refuse, if their heart is filled with pride and anger they won't let go of, that's something you can't help. Your heart is clear. God says, You're, you've done what all, all I've said for you to do. Now it's between them and me. But the point Jesus is making is that reconciliation comes before worship. You know, the church is popular. We're all guilty of this, believe me. We're all guilty of this. The church is populated with a lot of hypocrites. And we all can play the hypocrite from time to time. I mean, there are career hypocrites, okay, professional hypocrites. And then even those with a sincere heart can fall into hypocrisy. What is it? Mostly it takes the form of not liking somebody in the body and yet pretending like everything is okay. You know? I mean, the fighting that goes on throughout the week in churches, you know, where this one's calling this one and this one's talking behind this one's back and there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of animosity, there's a lot of resentment, backbiting and gossiping. And we all come to church and put our little holy smiles on and everyone's worshiping God. And God's like, are you kidding me? I can't hear you. I'm not even listening to that stuff. Because I see what's going on in your hearts. As John put it, how can you love God whom you have not seen if you can't love your brothers whom, or your sisters whom you have seen. And God's saying, I don't want this hypocrisy. Look, the church is not populated with perfect people. We are sinners saved by grace, right? We are all sinners saved by grace. We're a family, right? Families are going to have conflict. Conflict is not necessarily a sin. It's how you deal with the conflict that determines whether or not it's a sin. I mean, iron sharpeneth iron, right? I mean, you know, we're all passionate for God. That proves the church is alive because when a church is alive, there's a lot of passion for God. And because of it, people have a lot of different ideas about how to reach the lost and how to do the work of God. And sometimes we're going to butt heads, right? Sometimes, you know, we're going to have different ways of doing things. We're going to come together. Sparks are going to fly. That's okay. It teaches us how to work with each other, how to humble ourselves. Okay, well, I need to compromise here and, and I need to compromise and work together. 
We're going to have conflict. It's inevitable. Yet when there is conflict, we need to deal with it in the spirit. But the idea here, too, is that, look, you know, the Bible says when we give our heart to Christ, the Holy Spirit came inside, right? Came inside of us. Romans 5, verse 5, when he came inside of us, he poured the love of God into our hearts. How do we know we're really Christians? Do you love the brethren? Do you love the brethren? I mean, to me, that's one of the litmus tests that the scriptures hold up as one of the evidences of a person really being saved. Listen to what John said in his first epistle, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He said, if we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life. It proves that we're saved. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. Just what Jesus is saying here. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. And so we have to be careful. I mean, this anger that some people have, this hatred for others, it could indicate that you don't even know the Lord yourself. Because when you receive Christ, the Spirit comes inside. He pours God's love into your heart. And that gives you the ability to love even enemies. Look, I have heard stories of people who have gone through things I can't even imagine. I, I was somewhere one time and I caught a, I think it was a Christian bookstore and they had a TV going and it had a videotape in there and it was a, a Christian gal who was a singer and she stopped the concert and began to tell her testimony. How she was literally locked in her room every day and she was beaten, I don't know, by her mother or father every day. The father raped her repeatedly throughout the week. This went on for years. She got older. She at one point received Jesus Christ. And the Lord gave her the grace to forgive her mom and dad. He gave her the grace, the supernatural ability to forgive them for what they had done to her. You, you look at this girl. I mean, I was looking at her. My mouth was just hanging open. She seemed to be the most loving, the most right on, the most well-adjusted person. I mean, she had such a great outlook on life because the Lord had given her the grace to forgive and to move forward. And now she has a ministry to young girls who are going through abuse or have been through abuse because she knows what they're going through and she can minister to them. So God is even turning what the devil intended for evil. God is using it for good. God's love is available to all of us who are believers. We don't have to use it. We don't have to tap into it. We can hold on to our resentments and bitterness and anger. We'll talk about that more in a second. All right, let's bring this to a close. Verses 25 and 6, Jesus said, Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Here Jesus uses an illustration borrowed from the legal system of his day, something that everyone was very familiar with, which required the plaintiff to personally track down the defendant. In other words, if somebody had wronged you, if somebody committed a crime against you, if they owed you money, you wouldn't pay it, it was your responsibility to drag them into court to stand before the judge. You couldn't call 911 or the police department and they would do your work for you. You had to drag them in. If you wanted justice. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Look, if you were on the road with your adversary. In other words, he's captured you. He's dragging you into court now. Jesus said, look, I mean, cut a deal with him quickly. Work it out, all right? Do it now. 
Make amends with your adversary. Get it right because once the matter reaches court, it'll be too late to work it out on your own. See, once the court gets involved, the matter would be out of your hands. And the judge, if he found you guilty, would hand you over to the court officer who would immediately demand payment to the creditor that you owed. If you couldn't make payment, he would immediately cast you into prison until you paid back every penny. But here's the problem. If you were in prison, how could you work to pay off the debt? You couldn't. You'd remain there until somebody else will say, paid off your debt for you. And that wasn't happening too many times, folks, because most people couldn't afford to do that. So you were in prison many times the rest of your life. In other words, reconciling with people is not only pleasing to God, it's also in your own best interests as well. Listen, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred is going to take you prisoner emotionally. It's going to rob you of your joy, your peace, etc., your relationship with God, etc. I mean, if not dealt with, I know people who hang on to anger. I mean, somebody does something wrong to them, and they will hold on to that anger and bitterness for the rest of their lives. And what does that do? It poisons, it's a root of bitterness, right? And once it takes root in a person's heart, it brings forth all kinds of evil fruits. I mean, the most miserable people I have ever met are those who have the most unforgiving hearts. But folks, let me end with this. There's an even greater application here than the practical one. That's the eternal one. When Jesus said, agree with your adversary quickly while you are still on the way. You know, there's a lot of people who think that God is their adversary. Now, God is not their adversary because Jesus Christ died for their sins. And that made, that satisfied or propitiated the justice of God. So God is no longer angry with man. Jesus paid for our sins. But there's a lot of people who believe that God is their adversary, that God is against them, and because of that, they are against him. And Jesus said, you know what? Agree with your adversary quickly while you are still on the way. What does that mean? While you're still walking your life's journey, while you're still alive. I mean, get right with God now through Jesus Christ while you still have a chance before it's too late. And you die and you stand before the judge of the entire universe. And he sentences you to prison until you have paid back every last sin. Prison, of course, would be hell. And you'll be in there for eternity because that's what it will take to pay back those sins. And once you're in hell, folks, you will never again have a chance to repent or be reconciled to God. That's why Jesus said, do it quickly while there's still time. It's in your best interests. And so who is a murderer? Well, hopefully, now that we've studied this, every one of us would say, I guess I am. Because I've hated people. I've even wished people were dead. I wouldn't kill them myself, but I've wished it. Well, murder, the scriptures say, is punishable by death physically and eternally. And yet Jesus has already paid our debt. And anyone who wants to escape the penalty, the wrath to come, all they need to do is receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I mean, well, maybe God doesn't want to make amends with me, people think. God's mad at me. I've lived a pretty terrible life. Maybe God doesn't want to make a... God loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you. 
I mean, he said, come to me. I won't cast you away. I won't turn you away. Come to me now while there's still time. I will receive you. I will forgive you. I will make you my child. The sins that you committed, I will wipe away and remember no more. You'll become a king's kid, a member of the kingdom. The kingdom will come inside of you right now, and someday you will be a part of that kingdom outwardly when my son comes and establishes it. What a great day that's going to be. So may God give us grace as we continue to go through this, uh, this sermon and realize, wow, <laughs> everything Jesus said I'm guilty of. That's right. We all are. That's why the law was given, to make us guilty. That we would get on our knees and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need your son. I can't make it on my own good works. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We are sinners saved by grace. We are undeserving of the least of your mercies. We certainly don't uh, deserve eternal life. We don't deserve to be called your children. We don't deserve to live with you in your kingdom someday. But, Lord, we get all of that by your grace. We thank you that you sent your son to die for sinners such as we. It's true, the song of John Newton, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies that we might understand your word, Lord, the way you intended it to be. We thank you, Father, and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.